Welcome to Career G-Code. In this podcast, you'll hear how everyday people impact the world through their careers. Learn about their journey, career hacks, and obstacles along the way. Whether you're already having the impact you want or are searching for it, this is the podcast for you. In today's episode, we have someone who worked on Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and now manages over $10.6 billion on behalf of the city of New York. Let's start the week with Chris Sun. All right, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Uh, Been a a fan and now I get to see the inner workings of this thing. It's cool. Awesome. Great to have you on here. I know you and I have known each other now for a couple of years um, Mm -hmm. and just recently reconnected on the strength of making this happen here. So I appreciate Mm -hmm. you. Uh, Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Awesome. Let's dive right in. Let's tell the audience what it is you do for a living. Yeah. So I currently work at the New York City Office of Management and Budget, OMB for short. And OMB is, I mean, as an organization, it serves as the chief financial agency of the city. But my role within it is really focused around managing the finances and public reporting in relation to a portfolio of federal grants that the city receives from the, the federal government. In particular, uh, a 10.6, or close to $10.7 billion portfolio of grants from FEMA and other federal agencies for disaster recovery. Post-Hurricane Sandy, the city got billions of dollars for not just emer- emergency relief in the short term, but long-term infrastructure development, resiliency projects, and making sure that the city could rebuild itself stronger. So I did I manage the, sort of the, the transactions and the agency relationships related to those grants. Just to make sure I understand, so you manage about $10.6 billion that the federal government has provided the New York City, mm-hmm. for particularly for things related to uh, Hurricane Sandy and and recovery from that. And your role is to make sure that that money is uh, reported back on and that we're doing what we said we would do with that, with those funds. Does that generally sound right? Yeah. Yeah. I think broadly it's both tracking how that money gets spent by city agencies. So the way it's structured is kind of in reverse uh, in the sense of we know we have, $10.6 $10.6 billion that the federal government is funding to the city, but mm. the city being the city and how large it is and how well resourced it is pays up front out of its own budget for a lot of the construction projects that happen, the payrolls that need to happen, things that just need to be bought because it's much faster just pay out of your own pocket. And so we make sure that these city agencies, when they're paying for these things, that they're doing it correctly, they're tracking their documentation, they're Mm. trying to avoid waste, fraud, and abuse, and that we can collect all that information centrally here within OMB to convince the federal government that, hey, these are costs that fit the grant criteria, ergo, you should pay us back. And we make sure they pay us back. So that's, you know, got to gotta close that, that loop. Literally your job. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, is this what you always wanted to do for a living? Uh, no, I think, yeah, I, 
quite frankly, I wasn't even sure early on that this was something I would be capable of doing. I think Mm -hmm. looking back, especially when I was younger, I always thought I wanted to be in public service in one way, shape or form. And I think government was, you know, the idea of being in government played a big role in that. But I was never, I I could barely, and I still hate doing math. And, (laughs) you know, the idea of like being in like kind of a financial field and working with data in the way that I do now, I never really crossed my mind when Mm -hmm. I was younger. Uh, It wasn't until, you know, sort of being exposed to this world uh, and sort of finding my niche that I was like, oh, actually, you know, kind of good at this. <laughs> awesome. Good to know that there's hopeful people like myself that also are not inclined to do a lot of math in the world, but can manage <laughs> large sums of budgets and, and figure yeah. things out for the city. I mean, Excel basically saves my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So let's backtrack a little. Let's talk about where'd you grow up and how'd you get anywhere near this type of field? So I guess we'll just size born in Flushing, Queens, you know, got a, got a rep Queens, uh, mm-hmm. to Taiwanese immigrants, both my mom and dad immigrated from Taiwan in the mid eighties. And they actually met here in New York city. Uh, and so I was born in Queens, I was raised there until I was about nine or 10 years old, I think. And around that age, you know, it was the mid nineties. My family decided to move out to Baldwin in Nassau County, which is a little hamlet of Long Island, which at the time is like the polar opposite of New York City, right? It's a, everyone's got a house, white ticket fences, two kids and a dog, that kind of environment. So it was a kind of a definitely a culture shock for me. And that's where I went to my junior high, high school, and then going off to college at SUNY Albany. That makes sense. I mean, it sounds like your parents came here with hopes of achieving the American dream and were able to get a house, which is, you know, uh, pretty much the American dream when you're an immigrant coming into the country and trying to figure things out and just put your kids in positions to take it further from there. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think their their pursuit of, I mean, uh, you know, what they understood to be the American dream sort of instilled in me sort of the, the kind of challenges that immigrant communities face and you know what kind of services and what kind of aspirations like Mm -hmm. people try to uh, try to achieve as new immigrants in this country so i think you know luckier luckier than a lot of folks but still you know it was an interesting experience no for sure so when you say leaving new york city and going out to long island was a culture shock anything particular that stands out to you Uh, I mean, just, I guess the, both the pace. And I think for me, elementary school and flushing, like 90% like Asian growing out to moving out to Baldwin at the time, I think I was like the only non-white kid in school at the, at the elementary school I moved into. I think it's gotten much more diverse since then, uh, with, you know, waves of people moving out there like long island the suburbs being becoming like what it is now but at the time in the 90s it was predominantly white and yeah it's definitely different for me and just understanding how to 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 move in different like you know present myself in different spaces it was uh good early on 
Got it. That makes all the sense in the world. I mean, you were boosting the diversity numbers at the time. So, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you were the one percent, man. That's crazy. Uh, you know, gotta, gotta strive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I differently, I came, I was actually an immigrant myself with my parents. Mm. So I came here uh, with my mom when I was about seven or so and going to high school here, it was the exact opposite. Like it was pretty much your, your flushing experience mm. was like my experience or like, oh, okay. it's, pretty much all minorities or people that look like me yeah, and I didn't quite experience dealing with other races until really, really dealing with people until like college. Um, mm. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to work at the Statue of Liberty, so I had to interact with people from all over the world on a mm. weekend basis. But on a day to day, I didn't really get that experience until until college, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I know, right. I think people talk about city being a bubble of itself, but it's just like having exposure that we do, you know, either growing up in New York City or living it, it's like a different environment in yeah. a lot of ways and a lot of places around this country. Absolutely. Yeah. New York City is not quite the melting pot that we like to perceive. It's more like a, like a bento box. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything is there, just kind of a little separated. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, uh, I'm going to use that one from now on. A little bento box. <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. Um, so yeah. So where did you get that, that other experience? Where, where'd you end up going to college? Yeah. I went to college in SUNY Albany upstate. Uh, it's up Albany is sort of north, uh, much farther north in New York city. It was for me, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. It's like, you know, like college, like, college freshman i sort of picked albany at the time thinking like oh this would be a cool experience of you know mm -hmm. being close to state government seeing what the politics is like like you know i have no i mean 18 years old i have no idea what yeah. it means to work in politics and what it means to be close to that and so went to suny albany wait studied. was that part of your decision making process though like to think <laughs> that this is the capital and therefore it's close to state government. That was part of the decision-making process, even yeah, if you didn't know exactly was, what you wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, I remember that being part of the decision-making process, how much okay. of a, like, what did I know I was making a decision sure. on? I like, probably like not, not a whole lot of depth there. Yeah. You um, heard about fountain day and you were sold. I yeah, it. yeah. You know, it was like, all I heard about Albany at the time was like capital day kegs and eggs and then like nice. sold <laughs> yeah yeah sure. but i think really yeah it ended up being a really good opportunity for me because i i ended up not only just majoring in, in political science and interning at the time at the new york state assembly but being able to just be exposed to how decision making is done at that kind of level was actually really fascinating for me i think there was a moment of trying to see what you can achieve in that kind of environment was exciting for me yeah was political science your the first major that you declared uh yes yes okay. it was the first major i declared and i don't know yeah i never really had doubts about that part uh awesome. i think political science classes like because i also it was like a focus in international relations which is something i continue to be interested and want to be you know knowledgeable on it was very engaging to me where a lot of classes just weren't not engaging <laughs> yeah no that makes all the sense in the world well tell me about your your internship at the assembly yeah for my internship i actually got 
to uh, intern for the assembly member uh, that was my actual representative at the time in Long Island. He was actually a Republican, and I, I, you know, I look back on that now. I go, wasn't really not well about like party politics or anything as much back then as I am now. But it was actually really engaging to see he was very, you know, uh, good at negotiating with other members and communicating those results back to constituents, right? And for me, the most interesting part about that experience was the designated days, like lobbying day or whatever, where groups of people come to petition the members on uh, various causes that they have, bills that they are supporting, and the sort of presentations that they develop to try to engage assembly members. And so being on the front lines of that, like getting all the material, having to draft correspondences back to articulate an argument for or against, for me as a college student, I had not been exposed to anything like that before. It was actually very interesting to sort of help me develop a, a political identity for myself, I think was, was useful. I do want to take a quick moment and at least recognize that everyone may not be very politically savvy and not really understand Mm. the difference between a council member and assembly member and things of that Mm. nature. Um, So I do, can you just briefly kind of outline to the best of your knowledge, just kind of how an assembly member's role is and how that person can be your representative down in Long Island, but you work for them over in Albany instead? Yeah. So New York state, like I think most, States and like the federal government is has two legislative houses, right? So there's a New York State Senate and a New York State Assembly. Each one of those have their own districts. So the New York State Assembly, being the lower house, has a, a smaller district and a greater number of members. And for me, the Assembly district that they've they carved out included like my town and like a neighboring town and what they do is they vote on obviously the state budget every year bills that go through uh the state legislature for signing by the governor so in day to day like you know being able to look and read bills that the state legislature has tried to develop and how it impacts like day-to-day life i think was you know part of the draw for me and i think people just don't generally recognize that a lot of what happens, what impacts people more heavily on a day-to-day basis is stuff that happens in a state legislature, right? The national politics are are the big draw on the news all the time, but state governments where like big moves often happen and go unnoticed. Great. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. You said throughout this experience is where you found your kind of political identity and mm-hmm helped you kind of hone in on what it, what the impact was you wanted to have. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what, what was it that you really learned that you feel like, okay, it set you on the right path so that when you graduated college and you, not necessarily what exactly the next steps were, but generally the, the goalpost? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was helpful just to expose myself to issues that impacted people, right? Impacted people enough to come lobby their assembly member. So uh, it, it started on my path to developing a political identity, but it, it was just a, that initial exposure, just 
generally throughout the internship, people would come and advocate for school vouch lunch vouchers or more education to support affordable, uh, more funding to support affordable housing in in neighborhoods. Those kind of issues, just seeing how they played out on the ground in the district that I was in was the first time really just to say, okay, is this something that I believe in or, or that I can sort of contribute to? I think I started me on the later part of my career after graduating when I started actually working within a community at the nonprofit I, I started working in, uh, where I was actually sort of on the flip side of, oh, okay, implementing programs that people were previously advocating for uh, at the state legislature. So that it was just the initial exposure for me, I think was just crucial. That's awesome. What what were you doing at that next role that you were talking about when you were actually on the ground, you know, implementing some of these programs and making sure that the, the good thing with politics is they can funnel resources to mm-hmm. very needed communities. And mm-hmm. some of these organizations are frontline, making sure that those services are delivered, um, whether mm-hmm. that's through funding from government forces or through private entities, right? Or mm-hmm. private donations, right? But I think mm-hmm. a lot of these organizations are really fighting the good fight on the front line. So I, I just mm-hmm. want to hear a little bit about what it was um, that you were doing there. Yeah. So this is, you know, like right out of college or close to right out of college, I started working at this nonprofit in, well, based in lower Manhattan called Asian Americans for Equality. And at the time I was a, a community organizer trying to do education and outreach to largely low-income, largely immigrant communities in lower Manhattan, Flushing, Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Um, these are communities that actually had uh, not just large influxes of Chinese immigrants, Southeast Asian. There was just a need. This was like early 2010. We're still, you know, sort of recovering from the financial crisis. And a lot of folks were still feeling the effects of foreclosure, uh, not having access to affordable loans to purchase their own homes, not being able to start businesses, not knowing where to get immigration services. So for me, it was going out into the communities, talking to uh, community members about the kinds of services that uh, our, our organization were, were running. So one of the things that you know we ran was just a, a citizenship course, right, which is straightforward and, and mom and pop kind of, very apple pie kind of a program. But mm-hmm. a lot of people just, you know, may have wanted to get involved, but didn't know how to. So just yep. getting, showing up at like senior centers on like a Sunday or like, you know, knocking doors so people know where, where to go to get these services. This was what I did in day to day. How'd you like that experience? Pretty eye-opening. I would, I think looking back, probably that was the only time in my life where I could have done it. And, you know, this was like a time where a lot of folks didn't have jobs, right? And I was, you know, coming into mm-hmm. a position where I'm working like all the time, odd hours, traveling from one part of the city to another. And, you know, sometimes it was just stressful, but it 
did really open my eyes to the types of gaps that underserved communities fall into and where those, you know, needs really are, right? So before this experience, like thinking about like lending as a tool to uplift communities, right? Hadn't been something that I thought about, but seeing all these small business owners coming in saying, I can't meet payroll next week. Like we need, you know, where can I get a loan to like pay mm-hmm. my staff? Right. It really starts to start to make you think about sort of the, the systemic connections that tie all of our, like larger problems together. So that was, you know, for me, I think incredibly valuable, incredible growth experience for me and just being able to make connections in within the city and the community. I'd look back fondly on it. <laughs> I mean, you were an outreach coordinator or mm-hmm. some level of that type of role yeah. for a small nonprofit. I mean, how large is the organization? It's about like, oh, I don't know or about the these time. days. Back then, it's like about 100 staff okay. throughout the so, city. Yeah. So can you just give us a ballpark or like a range of in that type of role where you're expected to where you're having such a positive impact and you're putting, you know, a lot into it, right? Like you're out there on mm-hmm. Sundays, you're out there on Saturdays, making mm-hmm. sure that people receive these services and you're passionate about it. What type of money are people making doing those types of roles? Mm, yeah, I think at the community nonprofit level, uh, the salaries can be a little restrictive. I think for me, and the, I guess this is like, 10 years ago now, probably about like 32,000 at the time for like someone fresh out of undergrad. And I know that's, you know, sort of the, the on the low end. Uh, mm-hmm. Also at the time, you know, a lot of organizations were struggling to afford any staff. So yeah, I, I think that that's kind of the, the yeah. ballpark for that kind of role. That sounds right. And I think, I, I think it's important for us to talk about things like that. Right. Because I feel like, mm-hmm. People look at you today and say, wow, look at Chris. He's so successful. He's awesome. Clearly, you know, has had a great path the whole way. But like coming out of college and this is, you know, I'm sure you may have mm. had, may have had some odd jobs in between, but like landed on this one role mm. that you're like, this is cool. And I, it's like per- mm. consistent with what your passion is mm-hmm. making somewhere near 32K in the city. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, I think it's, it's important to highlight that part of the path too. Like there's a, there's right, a long right. journey that comes with it. Um, especially when you're really mission driven and are looking to have the type of impact that I think you're having in your career. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think part of that whole situation is certainly like the timing of it and mm-hmm. the, being the, in the midst of a, of a crisis as a word. But I, I certainly think, right. It doesn't have, I think certainly is the floor. <laughs> I think yeah, you yeah. Know, being mission driven, and this is my personal view. I think today it's definitely much more wide ranging and being mission driven and being able to have like a sustainable lifestyle. Uh, yeah. So yeah, just to put on the radar too, like I don't think it, it needs to be that way. I think you just encapsulated one of the goals of this whole show, which is mm. to highlight that in order to be mission driven, it doesn't equate being broke. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. You can have a career that you're very proud of can really hang your hat on the fact that you're having a real impact 
but mm-hmm. also be able to sustain your life, your family, and whatever your goals are. Um, especially like if you're looking at the son of an immigrant of immigrants, right? Like mm-hmm. that's that's a lot. Like that's a lot mm-hmm. of pressure when it's like my parents uprooted their lives to come here so that the yeah. trajectory of our families have a better path. Yeah. You want to do great things, but also you kind of got to make the bills happen. So yeah, it's important yeah. to, to really say that I feel like, and it's important to showcase that it's possible. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, right. There's that immigrant cliche of everyone wants their child to be a doctor or a lawyer. And then at the time, you know, I'm like going around knocking on doors and making 32,000 a year. And it's like, what am I really working <laughs> for? It's right. Yeah. So, I think, and your no, parents I, don't I, understand I, your job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, what is, I can barely spell this. Uh, but no, I think, right, it doesn't have to be pigeonholed in that. It's certainly, certainly not forever. So I think yeah. there are certainly skills that one can build up throughout their career to, to achieve that in their own way. That makes sense. So walk me through it. What did you do after that role and how, how long did you do that role for? So I was in that role for about two and a half years, I think, okay. uh, more closer to three. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, sort of a point where, okay, this is very interesting work, very, I think, meaningful work, but not something I can personally sustain doing given the you know, growth and, and lifestyle and things like that. And you that. like your so, Sundays, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I, I like having free time. So I think in 2013, I started working at the Open Society Foundations, uh, where I, uh, which is a global foundation uh, funded by George Soros. And I was working primarily on the U.S. program side of the organization, where I was um, helping to create grants that funded nonprofits throughout the country doing work on similar issues of you know, immigrant rights, uh, economic justice, promoting affordable housing, those kind of issues. But I was on the flip side now, right? Where I, before I was programmatically like on, on the ground doing the work, promoting the programs. And now at Open Society, I was funding nonprofits to do that kind of work. And that took me yeah, some time to adjust to, but I think it reinforced in me just how much uh, systemically, you know, these issues are tied together, and and what it takes to sustain these types of or these types of organizations out in the field, which I just wasn't attuned to, you know, being on the ground. How was that transition, and what were some of like the the things you took away that you ended up liking or not liking about being kind of one step removed, right? Like, mm-hmm. or maybe even two steps removed, right? Because I think one step is the folks on the ground doing the actual programming. I would say the next step is probably the executive director of that type of organization mm-hmm. of the small nonprofit, because they're mm-hmm. now not necessarily implementing the programs, but more getting the funds into mm-hmm. the organization to, you know, funnel and create those and maintain those programs. And I mm-hmm. think you were like the third tier, which is now mm-hmm. you're the person that comes in with funds to say, mm-hmm. I know you all are doing great work. I want to support you all in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Here's a pot of money and show me that you can do that. Uh, how was that transition? And what did you like about either of those? Yeah, I mean, great. I think the transition at first was 
difficult. And I think I came into it like, oh my God, I am out of my depth here. I remember meeting everyone for the first time on my team at OSF and I was like, I went home and I was like, these are the smartest effing people I think I've ever met in my life. Like, <laughs> Is that the oh, imposter I... syndrome? Yeah. Yeah. In? I'm, yeah. I'm like, holy shit. I'm going to, I just got to like nod my head and pretend. But I, I think, right, just getting, jumping into like a totally different environment and really learning what it takes to not just fund an organization, but stepping back and say, okay, if you have a goal for the change that you want, like what is strategically, what does it take to get there and, and making sort of conscious decisions about money and allocating money between, you know, different objectives, I think was a first for me. Secondly, I mean, my role hinged primarily upon, you know, evaluating organizations in how sustainable in the sense of will they be managed well enough to, to get more grants, right? And so that was my chief role. And that included doing sort of typical like management consulting kind of analyses of what's the leadership like, how are their financials, how long of uh, savings do they have, what's their communication strategy, all these different pieces that we had to evaluate our grantees on, uh, our, our nonprofit grantees on that mm-hmm. I had, they weren't sort of my innate sort of things that, you know, I've been previously trained to do, but you know, through training that I got there and just being able to do it on the regular, I think I got very good sort of perspective on how to manage and operate sort of these organizations uh, and what kind of like diversity they had. For some context, though, yeah. how large were these grants and how long did uh, the organizations have to fulfill the grants? Yeah, that's a good question. And it really ran the gamut. So we had, you know, large grantees like Center for American Progress, right, which is a huge organization. And they would get you know, like a million dollars for you know, five years or something. The more run-of-the-mill grants that we made were for either one or two-year terms, and that could average anywhere between 125 to $300,000 per year. So that that's kind of the the average, I think. That's awesome. And I mean, I know about the Open Societies Foundations because, mm-hmm. I mean, Open Society is one of the largest foundations, I think, or more noteworthy foundations, I think, mm-hmm. um, that we have around. Um, how, in terms of staff, though, how big is that organization or was at the time? Oh, that's a, I'm not even sure of the full number. Over 500 just in New York City, but there are mm. offices in like more than a dozen countries. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't know the total number of staff. Got it. No, and that's fine. I mean, that's, that's about a Google away, right? I just wanted yeah. to get a sense for the listeners, right? Like this is not an organization yeah. of like seven people this is right a pretty robust organization that has right, been right. quite some time doing some really mm-hmm. good work actually i do feel like i need to call out like we do really have a lot of imposter syndrome sometimes and like clearly <laughs> they hired you for a reason and clearly 
you bring a lot of experience on doing a lot of the on the ground work and being on the field. And yet mm-hmm. for some reason we feel like we're not worthy of being in that room or in those conversations. And it's the exact opposite. Like it, you are exactly what's needed out there to mm-hmm. be able to say like, what should we fund? What mm-hmm. should we not fund? <laughs> like what organizations, how do we hold these organizations accountable? Or like, if they're telling me this is going to take a year, like I've done that job. That's going to take two mm-hmm. months. Like mm-hmm. people like you with that experience and that understands one, how these programs are implemented, but two, the impact that they should be having is exactly mm-hmm. what we need in those rooms. Right. So I think I'm sure that has gone since, or maybe it still happens. Cause I mean, frankly, there are some times that I'm still in meetings and I'm like, Oh, you expect me to have the answer for this? Interesting. interesting. Mm. Cool, 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 cool. <laughs> I but, mean, yeah, <laughs> like we should. Like, yeah, we're there for a reason. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I think that comes with age and time. And like, I, I still walk into meetings, you know, with a sense of imposter syndrome of being unsure. But sort of the the problems that you know we face on a day to day. I think it's fair to say if you're pushing yourself, oftentimes you're coming across problems where, you know, maybe no one has the answer, right? And at some point you just got to say, you know, I'm, you know, I'm just going to throw something out, see what works and be confident to, if course correct if needed. So yeah, I, I'm right there at the end. It's hard to overcome, but got to, got to do something. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So how long were you in that role for? Or in that organization for a large? So I was there just like a few days over three years. So I was at the Open Society Foundations during a time where I was also starting graduate school and doing sort of night and weekend classes. And Raddy, that's how we met. Uh, I was going to say, let's wait. What'd you go to graduate school for? (laughs) Where'd you go? Why'd you decide on that program? So much is missing here. Yeah. So I, so went to decide to go to graduate school at Columbia at the school of international and public affairs. Just wanted to get my master's in public administration. Uh, Is that because you heard I was going there? Uh, obviously because I heard you're going there. But what made you actually, because I know, and, and I, I mean, yeah. for me, when yeah. I was looking at grad school, I was looking at a bunch of programs. Mm-hmm. I was like, I just feel like grad school is the next move. I don't mm-hmm. know exactly what I want to do grad school in, but something that makes sense. And then I learned about the executive MPA program at SIPA. Mm-hmm. I was like, mm-hmm. this makes sense for me. This is, this this is a program that is going to get me to what I want to do in the world. And mm. I mean, so far so good. Right. But and I yeah. mean, like what, what led you to that, to that point though? Right. Because there's millions of programs and thousands of schools that you could have gone to. Yeah. I mean, I, I chose that school specifically. And I feel like a lot of things in my life and maybe you can empathize with that. I'm always, looking at people I respect and like, oh, what are they doing? Like, what have they done with their life? What decisions they've made? And I remember, and this is much like many years before I even applied to grad school, but I had met someone who was in SEPA and to me at the time just seemed like the most intelligent, articulate person I've ever met. And someone that I actually really looked up to. So 
you know, I immediately went like, oh, I got to look this school up and see what the deal is. Because not only do am I sort of passionate about international affairs and it's a subject, you know, that I want to grow in, but also as a, as a master's program from Columbia, I'm like, oh, this is a great way to sort of advance my career, right? And it's a no-brainer, especially in public affairs field, if you don't have a master's, you know, it's it's harder to sort of move up the ladder. So for me, I was like, this is something that clearly has benefit to it. And it made sense at the time because, yeah, Open Society was a more a more set like nine to five schedule and they were willing to sort of ship in for the educational benefits. So I said, you know, there's really no excuse for me not to try to pursue this. So I did. Got it. So of your three years there, you started the executive MPA program in year what? A year. So a year two. So it was the last two years when I was at Open Society that was in grad school. Got it. How was balancing both of those things? Oh, exhausting. But I will say, you know this, Shadi. I think, yeah, we've talked about this before. You try to do a master's program at night, like every other kind of time management skill doesn't even compare. Like, I feel I, you know, I came, I went in thinking I was going to get a master's in public affairs. I got out like a master's in time, time management. That is, you know, just a That's incredible. Great. Yeah, it really is just true. Like I can, I can go from like work to a happy hour to right back to studying for exam and like sharp as I need to be. It's, you know, Absolutely. it's just what you had to do. And with our program, you have to be there Saturdays too. So <laughs> yeah, right, so got, right. Yeah. So you got to definitely balance out the personal life stuff that you thought was priority at the moment or sleep or the binge watching of shows that you thought were priority at the moment and you know really crunch that time management but i definitely agree and i hadn't heard it put that way but i'm stealing that one (laughs) time management you're you're welcome uh (laughs) nice okay so walk me through that so what happens um first of all did you get what you wanted after the at the school of international public affairs Yes. And no, I think it, I got out of it something I didn't think I, I would, right? I, I went in being more sort of policy focused uh, and really wanting to learn about the ongoing sort of political dynamics and challenges in, in certain content, whether it was like human rights or conflicts around the world. Like I, those are things I thought I went in. I was like, oh, this is interesting. I want to take classes on this stuff but i think and there was like a moment i think a a particular class where you know the sort of economics and finance track really clicked with me in a way that i hadn't really expected like i before this i'll be honest i never took an economics class before my master's program yeah as a poli-sci major um, i mean yeah that doesn't make sense why you would have yeah, I, I mean, I'm so also thinking like surprised because it really just clicked when we were sitting in class and like starting to learn about economics and and taking these more like quant heavy classes and kind of like, oh, why didn't I start learning? Why didn't I do this like before? Right? So I think it may, you know, everyone looks for something that was sort of makes, helps them make sense of the world around them. And that was something I gravitated towards. And so that. I think it was really valuable for me 
and I think separately, you know, outside of like the first year where you're taking sort of general broad classes on, you know, just general management classes, I started to pivot in the second year towards, you know, specific skills that I wanted to obtain for myself. Right. And I think that's where really the value for me was. I think I, you know, did like a decision modeling class because a, a friend had recommended it. And that was huge for me. I think I, that course alone, like helped me get this job at OMB. Right. But it was that's like, awesome. I really wanted to get, I wanted to learn those skills that I could apply elsewhere uh and you know something i could use regularly yeah interestingly enough i actually took that class too and it was very eye-opening because what it taught Mm -hmm. me was even if i didn't use solver (laughs) every day of Mm -hmm. my life in excel (laughs) knowing that you can solve problems in very calculated ways Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by using programs like that yeah was extremely valuable yeah. Knowing that it didn't have to be a gut reaction, like how many right. sanitation trucks should we deploy today? Like, there's a specific number right. that should that uh, will yeah. tell you exactly how to do it. Yeah. And it's underappreciated, I think, just generally how decisions are made in large organizations. It is in that way, right? It's someone like shooting from the hip, like I got a number for you. I think this works. <laughs> yeah, I can tell in my heart. But right, I think you know, as as people who are more sort of inclined to use like data and information to drive your decision making i think i start gravitating towards okay what it what can i reasonably predict to make a decision with absolutely okay so you graduated from sepa and mm-hmm. you're now three years in uh, open societies what happens uh so three years into open society I graduated in May of 2016. uh, June of 2016, I quit my job. And part of this, I mean, decision-making, like choosing to quit, not only was it a a specific inflection point in my life, I think, where getting out of grad school, like feeling really uh, empowered to to just stretch my knowledge, you know, those knowledge I gained, having a little confidence in myself, but also getting out into the world. I think having done work and school for two years is also like a, a, a little bit oppressive after a while. So I decided oppressive. to quit. That's great. <laughs> Am I over-dramatizing this? So self-inflicted <laughs> oppression, for sure. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think you know, also separately for me, at Open Society, it was a point where both I had grown to the maximum point where I thought I was able to grow within the organization. And also, you know, based on what we talked about, like sort of data driven decision making, there wasn't really a place for that within the organization, at least sort of the work that I was doing. Right. Uh, It was, you know, not something that I could have sort of pursued. So it made sense for me to take some time off, travel the world a little bit, but also, you know, focus myself on finding a place that I could really measure my own personal impact, right? Because that's huge for me. If I'm going to spend like nine to five every day going to work somewhere, I need to know like 
what it is that I'm that I'm contributing to here and measure that consistently. So that was just sort of my frame of thought. So you went from a job, a full-time job, mm-hmm. and a master's program at Columbia University to mm-hmm. quitting, to graduating from one and quitting the other, and now not knowing exactly what you were doing next, but figuring that you would take the time for yourself now to really either to go traveling and figure out what that next step actually looks like, given the skills that you had now acquired and mm-hmm. kind of the point that you were in in your life. And I mean, let's face it, right? 2016 was a very interesting political climate overall. <laughs> and a very big awakening moment for a lot of us. But, mm-hmm. I mean, at TIPA for sure, but I think um, in the city and in the country overall, it was just a very interesting time. So mm-hmm. tell me about what did you do? So you, you stopped working, what, end of June 2016? Mm-hmm. Yeah. After we, after we both graduated, right? We walked that stage yeah. together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those good photos, man. Good times. Uh, good times. Yeah, I think so. June, yeah, we graduated in May. In June, I, I quit. Uh, and then got like a one-way ticket to Europe. Uh, traveled for a few months. Did some volunteer work in Greece. Uh, ended up in Turkey. The goal was to sort of travel a little longer, but uh, sort of changes in Turkey at the time made it where I just I thought, okay, better to to fly back to the United States, which you know at the time, late summer, early fall, twenty sixteen is when the sort of the, the Clinton campaign was you know, getting up and running, and it was just something you know I I thought, oh, okay, this is something I could get involved in. Uh, mm-hmm. It's only going to last a few months, and you know, potentially, it could be something that could lead to a greater opportunity. So that's where sort of my my decision making was at that point. Wait, let's backtrack one moment before yeah. we get to the claim campaign. Yeah, you said you traveled for a few months, and within that, you did some volunteer work. Yeah, where and why? <laughs> like, yeah. if you're traveling, trying to find yourself, why are you volunteering, and where are you doing that? And what is that yeah. like overseas? So, I mean, I was traveling at this point alone for like a, a month at that point. And uh, it's the time of, you know, Syrian refugees trying to escape the civil war, going into Turkey. And a lot of them were taking boats from the Turkish mainland to islands in the the uh, east of, of Greece. So uh, I was traveling from Italy to Greece, uh, and it seemed like a particular point where I thought, hey, I could really, passing through anyway, I could apply some of the, the skills I've learned, gained, you know, try to help out with some of these uh, sort of rural islands that were just inundated with refugees and some of these camps desperately needed volunteers to help do day-to-day necessities so as i'm just traveling for fun thinking okay this would be a good opportunity for me to really see challenges on the ground but also gain some useful experience if my goal were to sort of pivot to international affairs right uh-huh. so that's where my thinking is at and i ended up going well i've actually can say you know, just browsing facebook i got found this like 
Facebook group for refugee support organizations in Greece. It's just like, hey, I'm passing through. Does anyone need help? And this nonprofit called sort of organizing clothing deliveries and just doing like the refugee intake on this island, Chios. And basically it was like, hey, if you want to come uh, volunteer, you can stay for low cost housing at one of the houses we have. So I was like, that sounds like a great deal. Uh, so wait, you'd never heard of these people before and you just no. spent a month away and decided, okay, I feel rested now. <laughs> what else could I do? And decided to browse on Facebook and find places that you could potentially volunteer while you were in the area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That yeah. I'm going to, let me frame this the nicest way I can, Chris. That's not the norm. <laughs> like, <laughs> I would have stayed on a beach somewhere, and that's just me, right? But you decided, you know what? Let me let me do something with my time while I'm here, knowing that I won't necessarily be in this part of the world forever. And this is probably the only point in my life when I can be in this side of the world and see things from a whole different perspective especially if you just graduated from the School of International Public Affairs and you were trying to get into that realm generally, like it's very, it's a very selfless move, but also a very strategic move, right? Like you're like, Mm. how do I do something that is passion aligned, but Mm -hmm. also something that gives me the perspective that I hope to have in my next role, whatever that may be, right? And I just, I feel like that deserves a standing ovation for you to have the foresight to say, let's just do it. Like, who cares? Like I'm here, might as well try something. And I'm like, that's, that's just fascinating. How long, how long did you actually do that for? And what were you actually doing? Yeah. So I'll just carry out to say, I I still got the beach. Don't worry. There's plenty of beach lounging around. Oh, thank you. Um, I was was so concerned. (laughs) I'm not that, I'm not that selfless. I definitely, you know, got to enjoy myself, but I did that for about a month. Originally it was supposed to be, sort of, you know, just a, a quick stint, I thought, pass through on this Greek island. Uh, it's gorgeous. I'm going to stay for really cheap, help out as much as I can. But it became a longer stay because my original itinerary of traveling through Turkey was kind of bogged down due to, at this time, the 2016, there was a, a military coup attempt in Turkey, if folks remember. And you know, a lot of, of tourism kind of died down and there was sort of a, a lot of military activity, especially on the area that I was close to. So it just seemed, didn't seem like the right time to cross into Turkey. Uh, and meanwhile, there was just this need in these these uh, two UN-run camps on this island in Hios that had just overwhelming number of refugees and the conditions were or getting sort of unsanitary and, you know, they just needed as much sort of help and supplies as they could. So day to day, what we did was really threefold, right? It's waking up super early to watch out for boats. And basically what I mean by that is these refugees would, would choose early hours of the morning to uh, try to cross the the strait that separated this Greek island from the Turkish mainland. It was done more so to uh, uh, dodge the the Turkish police who were patrolling the the coast there. 
but they would pick these times. It's, you know, very little sunlight at the time. They would often get on these rubber dinghies and try to cross this eight kilometer stretch of water. Um, so we would stage lookouts on hills or cliffs to watch out for boats as they were crossing and defy local authorities with ambulances and whatever medical you know necessities they need to be ready because oftentimes you know people crossing were sick or god forbid those boats capsized uh we needed you know notification beforehand to make sure that we could receive these boats properly and safely second piece was the sort of the distribution of you know, clothing, goods, et cetera, on a regular basis. Most of the time it was, you know, clothes for women, clothes for children, socks, underwear. These things are always in low supply. So we tried to distribute them as much as we could. And the last is just sort of going around and camp management, more more to say. Like if, you know, people are stuck there with their whole families and oftentimes yeah. their children really had nowhere to go. So we'd go hang out with within the camps, you know, give the parents a little time to like be away from their kids. We'd take the kids to the park, a group of us volunteers, like taking the kids to the park, play some basketball, you know, it both gets the kids out, but also gives the parents some time away from Absolutely. being parents. Yeah, it's a in, lot. In so, very stressful times. Yeah. 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 Very stressful times. So I, those were sort of the really three main buckets of things that that we did while there um well, that was I mean, a whole job that's not like a volunteer a few hours that's like you have a full-time shift i mean nothing is a full-time shift in greece it's right, when you have fair. that much peace and sunlight it's kind of <laughs> nice uh, but I, yeah i think it was certainly like a great deal of work and for me you know the sort of eye-opening piece was to see okay these are what really in Syria were largely middle class or upper middle class families really laid low, right? Because if you were really trying to get to this, if you had to get to this island, like you already had to like pay a ton of money, forego all your belongings and like risk everything, right? And the amount of sort of courage and fear they had to overcome to to do something like that, I think is something that I constantly appreciate and, you know, I don't enjoy when others paint them as otherwise, because like you know, I'm not prepared. I certainly would not prepare prepared to do something like that. But they were willing to do it and, you know, they often had to overcome a lot more trying circumstances than I have. No, that's fair. I feel like, I mean, you know, life kind of throws you the curveball sometimes. And as you said, mm -hmm. these are middle class and upper middle class folks that were forced into situations that they clearly had not thought they would be in mm -hmm. for themselves and their families, right? Like mm -hmm. you work hard to have your stable home mm -hmm. and then you're forced to flee your country and seek refuge. Like that is not anyone's ideal scenario. Right, ever, right, right, right. Um, and it just became the realities. But you know, I think it's it's important to have organizations like the one that you were volunteering for that welcome these people at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, and things may have changed politically over there um, over the last few years, right? But you know, at the time to have a place that welcomes you when your country and things are in turmoil, mm -hmm. it's huge. 
it's absolutely mm-hmm. beautiful. So that's awesome that you were able to, to take a part of that. Yeah, no, it was a great experience for the limited time that it was. Uh, but yeah, yeah that something I, uh, I'll, you know, look back towards. That's awesome. Okay. So looking forward from there. Um, mm-hmm. So you leave and you come back and you're like, wait, what's happening with this election? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, who's running for what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what do you do? So I get back uh, and this is like, you know, mid-August 2016. Uh, and I'm thinking, you know, what's the, what is it that I can contribute now? you know, to do something interesting and, and be impactful with my life. So at the time, the uh, Clinton presidential campaign was hiring folks to be organizers on the campaign. And for me, it was kind of a dual, you know, sort of, again, I was very confident in my own self and my own abilities at the time. But it was for me to say, okay, if I see myself in government, if I see myself in potentially international development, what is sort of the opportunities now that exist, right? And so I felt that much more such opportunities would exist if I were to start as part of the campaign and and do that kind of work on the ground and pivot to post, you know, to like start 2017 when federal government administration would have sort of the usual turnover from a presidential transition, right? So mm. that was just the sort of like staging of things that I was thinking of at the time. So got hired as an organizer, got stationed out to York County, Pennsylvania, uh, which I don't know if you're vicious. No, it's just a few miles south of Harrisburg. Uh, and it is largely rural. I mean, most of the county is rural. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was just a very, I mean, kid from New York City, like it was a very different environment for me altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, you know, incredibly different kind of role than anything I've taken on before and really sort of stretch a lot of skills that I had not used before. So, yeah, it, that in of itself was was incredibly useful to me. So even coming from the section of Long Island that you grew up in, uh, you was already the culture shock. Mm. Then making it over here was still more of a culture shock for you, it sounds like? Oh, I mean, there are parts of, I mean, that part of Pennsylvania is more rural than any part of my town growing up. Like, you know, the town growing up was still suburban. Uh, yeah. But, and my understanding of that side of Pennsylvania is that it's it can resemble portions of itself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll say like you know, I I don't usually it, having traveled that part of Pennsylvania, right? There was the sort of you know sort of hostility not just to myself and the campaign, but also like an uh, prominent. Uh, display of like the Confederate flag and like you know people Got it. like target <laughs> like people also just target shooting out in like wild and I'm just like okay the New York the New Yorker is like oh I better like, call somebody and you're over here like hey can can I just talk to you about Hillary Clinton yeah <laughs> but uh, that's I, great yeah it, it's 
it was a uh, very different, but I, I think the real core of it, right? That the role required that I do something that I really, up to that point, wasn't really comfortable with. And to some extent, I'm still not as comfortable with, which is you're making direct communications to people on constantly for like 14 hours a day. And most of these people, you don't know any of them. You're just cold calling them. And mm-hmm. a good number of them are openly hostile to you. So what is that both one the communication skills that you need to develop to be able to uh, argue an idea and then not make it personal, but also to sort of once you have gathered, for me, it was just convincing someone to volunteer, which is my goal. But once you rope them into volunteering and being somewhat aligned with the ideas that you're espousing, how do you continue to motivate them, you know, not, not paying them? How do I motivate them to get what I need out of, you know, their efforts, right? And so those kind of skill types, much more of an introvert, like I didn't take pleasure in doing any of that. I needed to. It was the skills I was kind of thrown into and just learn on the fly. Got it. So you did that for a few months. Then come election day, Hillary wins and you get a permanent position. <laughs> oh, How did boy. that play out? <laughs> that would be, man, if that happened, I'd be on a different podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> on a much lesser no. known show. <laughs> Damn right. No, I, I think, you know, that was obviously very tough, not just for me, but I'm sure for, for a lot of people who put a lot of time and effort into the campaign. But I think part of that level for me at the time, not just personally feeling very confident in myself, but also, you know, like feeling confident in the campaign, having that sort of failure is, and I'll put it frankly, it was a feels like a failure right not just a collective one but everyone i'm sure part of it feels personally sort of implicated in that failure but i think it's you know looking back on it now a very important experience of being able to just adapt and you know just not to get too stuck on one goal or another because i feel like for me thinking okay i know what i want out of my career what i absolutely know what i want to do with my life like yeah and that door shuts so for me it was like i don't not to say that it couldn't have happened but wanting to do like international development work afterwards it seemed to me like a total no go right i think the idea for me personally is like, you know, the things that I thought were problems to be addressed were not the problems that were most prominent, right? I think staying and being uh, part of change here domestically mm. became the more paramount challenge that I want, that I felt I needed to be part of. Yeah, that, that realization, painful as it is, I think still is, is something that, you know, had to adapt to 
right? The world doesn't doesn't live up to everyone's aspirations. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, and it totally then makes sense how you ended up at OMB, right? Because that is a position to have a real impact in a city like New York that although a local government and it is a city, it has a very broad reach, right? So making mm-hmm. sure that places like New York are able to sustain continue to rebound from catastrophes and tragedies and really manage themselves as as a powerhouse that we are right i feel like it it makes total sense why you would have shifted from international work to okay let me see if i can work at a place like omb where we can make things happen in this city that have a real impact mm-hmm. and then potentially figure out you know what that means in a broader scale, right? But I think this it makes all the sense in the world why you would have transitioned from that given your experiences up to that point. Yeah, and I, I'm glad that made sense because I, I feel like I was trying to, after the campaign, just trying to find things that actually did make sense, right? Because I think that was a point in my career was where I'm not just trying to get any job, right? I think I'm past, you know, you, yep. you know, I guess you're not past that point. Like, what is my, what is my story here, right? Is it cohesive? Do I have a direction? I think that's a lot of things. That's something that people often ask themselves, right? Like, you know, do I have like an actual direction here? So that's just, I think I was lucky to start here at OMB and it was partially sort of friends that, classmates of ours that had been here and said, hey, this is like a good opportunity. The the office is very vibrant and there's an opportunity to sort of apply that mindset I was looking to to apply, which is, you know, decision like data driven decision making that I wanted to apply and it seemed like an opportunity to do it. So uh, I think, you know, certainly every step I'm thinking of like what is the the growth that I, the skills or growth that I want to see out of a position. So it glad it all, you know, it, I got lucky and glad it made sense. Awesome. You feel like it's worked out so far? Yeah, I think it's certainly worked out. I think a lot about my job that I really enjoy and part of this, you know, talked about like being able to apply the skills that I learned, being able to be at the forefront of a lot of the changes that we're seeing, not just in government, but also in finance play out at the forefront. And also, you know, sort of take all that, like the sort of hard skills and match up with like the the communication skills that I developed, right? A lot of my data, especially, you know, like move on up in my career is to say like, okay, a lot, more of my job is communications a lot less of my job is like crunching the excel right uh not to say i don't enjoy crunching the excel but right it's yeah being able to take on that extra piece which i hadn't built up as much but being able to stress those muscles is, is really good for me i think that's awesome one of the things that we are trying to at least give folks an understanding of is generally a range of what they can expect to make at a role like this. So mm-hmm. given, you know, you said you manage a, a portfolio of about $10.6 billion, right? Mm-hmm. And making sure that grants are are managed accordingly throughout the city. 
how much can someone expect to to really make in a in a role like this that for you seems to have panned out in a way that gives the impact that you want to have in the world? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it does vary. I think we're talking specifically about OMB, an analyst type of position. And understanding that you come with a master's and uh, for some people don't, and therefore the range may be broader and get it. I get all that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, right. If you're coming in, you know, we hire plenty of folks just right out undergrad as an analyst and they're making between 40 to 56,000 a year base. And, you know, I think sort of uh, at the managerial level, it starts to get into the low six figures on to, 160, 170. Um, and I think that, you know, certainly the more important thing is like the trajectory between that is mm. more fluid than I think it exists in a lot of other places, right? Like uh, in particularly in government where oftentimes it's people who came in here as like interns and moved on up to be directors over time. And that's not certainly unheard of. I, and I know for my own space, like that's not possible in a lot of places, right? It's yep. sort of a career ladder. I think it doesn't, that kind of it rarely exists anymore, right? It's just being able to hop from one place to another. So yeah, I don't know if that answered that's, your question. No, that absolutely answers it because I feel like that ties back into what we mentioned earlier, which is mm-hmm. you don't necessarily have to be broke to have a really good impact. Like mm-hmm. there is a gray area in which you can very well do both. And yeah. this seems to be one of the careers that that optimizes that opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think like the, if you know you have the skills to do that here, and I will say you know government is naturally going to have like a well, I won't say naturally, but I think government as it is has a, a, a more restrictive salary ranges than you would find for comparable skills in private industry, but the skills are nonetheless the same for a lot of these roles, especially when you're talking about financial planning analysis, database management, these kind of skills are are hard skills and, and very transferable. It's awesome. Can you just walk me through just generally what a, a day or week just looks like in your world? Yeah. So my typical week starts off with meeting with my team, talking about what our goals are for the week. Uh, identifying important meetings or events that are happening, making sure that any concerns my team has that I'm sort of communicating on up. But after how that, big is your team? To, uh, right now it's four, and I think I'm well. Technically, one of them I'm hiring for. So three right now. Uh, got three in a po- three in a possible. Yeah, like yeah. as a spade hand. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. I got uh, one for backup. If I ever if I ever get around to hiring anybody right now, it's times are times are too crazy for that right now. I guess. Um, but yeah, I think you know now being able to sort of communicate my team's concerns on on make sure they have whatever they need, but also looking over the the technical piece. Right, my job is a lot of financial management, and that includes you know making sure like our our financial database is accurate and everything's flowing correctly. We're getting the data we need from from the state's financial management system uh, and that we're making progress on the metrics that we wanted to make progress on. So oftentimes, you know, I'm 
I'm setting up ways to refresh that data on the regular, printing out reports to share with my managers, creating presentations that uh, may need to go on to senior managers here or to the public or to city council. And you know, making sure that at the end of the day, if there are any holdups with the city getting paid back for what it spent, that I'm there to either have a meeting or a call to to figure out what the holdup is. A lot of it, frankly, so so it's a lot of there is a lot of like finding random dollars in places that people have put there. (laughs) Got it. Okay, that's good to know. Is there anything else that the world should know about Chris? The world should know about Chris? I'm not this boring in person. Let's put it that way. <laughs> You're not this boring on the show either, or else it wouldn't air. But no, I, I know. This has been a lot of fun, and really, like having this kind of conversation and being able to talk about work. I think what you're doing here at this show is incredibly valuable, and I've tried to be frank about sort of you know personally challenges I've seen, but I also just want to emphasize like. I don't think my particular story, like like part of how I got here, one is where it ends. Because I think you know we're also constantly looking for ways to, and everyone should be constantly looking for ways to grow. But also different paths to get both here and where you want to go uh, that may not be the orthodox way. I hope at least there's one thing to take away is like my story has not been orthodox in that way. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and believe on the mission we're on, please like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using and share this podcast with your friends and your networks. Make sure you follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn at Career Cheat Code and tell us people or careers you would like to see highlighted. See you next week with some more cheat codes. Peace.